Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BGSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Jim Bovard here at Rogers Arena in Vancouver. Dr. Bovard is the team physician for the Vancouver Canucks ice hockey team, as well as the head physician for the Vancouver Whitecaps football club, and currently consults for Canada Snowboard and Tennis Canada. Dr. Bovard, thank you for being on the podcast. Happy to be here, Daniel. I recently had the privilege of spending some time with you on match day at the ice hockey, and you shared with me your approach to the player who has collapsed on field, and I was hoping you could start by sharing it with our listeners today. For sure. So when I'm sitting on the bench watching an event, I think that you can make an initial diagnosis based on your observation of what's happened on the field. Very simply, if someone is collapsed and not moving, there's one of two possibilities. If it has occurred in the flow of play with contact with another player, then I will make a working diagnosis immediately that is a C-spine injury until proven otherwise. However, if the collapse has occurred away from the flow of play, then I'm going to assume it's a cardiac arrest until proven otherwise. You've had a lifetime of experience at the elite level, and I was wondering if there are any cases of an athlete collapsing on field that particularly stand out. Fortunately, I've never had to face one of these directly myself, which is why I think it's so important that you be well prepared ahead of time. But we do look at these when they occur. Most recently in hockey, there was one in Arizona and a collegiate player who collapsed. And um, it, it was a cardiac event and it was dealt with quite efficiently, but it has led all of us to review our protocols for managing cardiac events simply because they are so rare. Preparation is the key. So what we've done here, and I think many other clubs have done the same thing is we will sit down in our locker room and work through a scenario and we will assign each personnel from the medical team a specific job ahead of time so they know in the event that it happens they have one specific task to perform and nothing else and they will take care of that task. So for example at our hockey events we have on-site a head trainer, an assistant trainer, we have two physicians, part of the team as well as an emergency physician and we have EMS staff. So we're fortunate, we're very well staffed for an event, but the danger is when you have that many people that it can lead to a bit of chaos. So we've sat down with all of those and worked out and assigned each person a very specific task in the event of a cardiac event. How often do you think you would practice going through that scenario with all the different team members? We, we sit down and talk about it at preseason every year and then we talk about it fairly frequently just to remind ourselves and we have prepared a card which we can hand to any of the personnel that may sub in and out. For example, the trainers and the physicians are pretty much the same every time but the uh, paramedics are, they change out so they may not know our system so we're able to hand them a card so they understand what their role would be in this scenario. I'd like to shift the focus now slightly to concussion, and our listeners will be aware of the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool 5, or SCAT 5, that was released in 2017. And the first page of the SCAT 5 outlines four steps for immediate or on-field assessment of an athlete with a suspected head injury or is collapsed. What are your thoughts about that tool? I think it's a, uh, you know, it, it, it's comprehensive. 
I found, however, in my uh, simple thinking, I need to have something that's reliable under the pressure of the uh, the situation, game time. And so I've come up with uh, with incorporating the principles that are in that tool, what I call the ABC concussion assessment. And that was a tool that you also shared with me when I was here at the ice hockey with you. And I know that tool has resonated with a lot of your students here at the University of British Columbia. That's right. Would it be okay if we go through the tool step by step with a clinical case in mind? Absolutely. I'm happy to, uh, to do that. So first of all, let's, let's go back a step. You know, you're on the bench. The, the game is proceeding and there may be many different ways in which it's identified that an athlete needs an assessment. It may be obvious that there's been a clash, uh, and a mechanism to the head and you're going out, they've gone down. It may be more subtle where we've been prompted at the professional level. We have spotters watching the games and they may uh, get a hold of us and say a certain player we're concerned about and you need to evaluate. Um, in the community, obviously, they don't have spotters and video to watch. So it may be a parent, it may be a coach, it may be another player, a referee who will prompt they're concerned about somebody. So with that in mind, we're now going out for whatever reason to assess this person. And in our mind, we're concerned that they may have sustained a concussion. And at this point, the athlete is still on the field. If it, again, depending on the sport, uh, if it's in soccer, yes, they're still on the field. In hockey, they uh, they because they switch lineups all the time. Players come on and off the ice. They may not be on the field to play. But in particular, I've developed this tool in the soccer model simply because of the flow of soccer without having any stoppages allowed to assess a player or bring them off to assess them we have to make our assessment in a brief period of time they now give us the three minute rule in major league soccer if we need to assess someone we get three minutes to evaluate other sports have different rules for example rugby have a substitution rule so they're able to take the suspected person off and take them to the locker room and then they can use the scat 5 tool effectively in a quiet environment to do the full evaluation. So this tool is really in the situations where you don't have that luxury and you're trying to make an evaluation of the athlete. And ultimately what you're trying to lead to is a clinical decision of whether they can continue to play or you need to pull them off. And once you've determined you you need to pull them off, you can actually stop the tool and then continue in the locker room in a controlled environment and do your full evaluation as outlined in the SCAT 5. So if we're on the soccer field and you see an athlete with a, who has collapsed, perhaps with a suspected head injury, and you're running out to assess that athlete on field within that three-minute period, what is your approach to assessing that athlete? Yes. So in that situation, I'm going out with our trainer and we've agreed in advance that if it's a suspected head injury, we will go out together. The trainer's initial uh, uh, evaluation, and I let him do the initial evaluation because he's more experienced and regularly goes out for all sorts of different injuries, minor or otherwise. So I will allow him to start the, the process, but we both follow the same using the acronym, the ABCDEF. So very simply, the very first one you arrive there, A stands for alertness. Pretty straightforward. If you get there and the athlete's not alert, you can stop right there. You've made your decision. You're not going to clear them to go on. You have made a diagnosis of a suspected concussion. You're removing them from the field of play. And then you can continue on with your evaluation as we discussed in the, in the locker room. 
but let's say they pass A, which is alert. They're alert. Then your next one is behavior. And that's often very helpful if you know the player well. And I, again, have the advantage of our trainers who work with them every day. And they can get a sense the behavior is not normal. And I can think of actually having experienced this with a, a player during a soccer game. I was an away game in Toronto when it was clear that his, uh, his filters were not there and he was showing abnormal behavior towards the away fans that demonstrated that, that he wasn't cognitively um, normal. So if their behavior is abnormal, again, you've now made your decision, you remove them from the field of play and carry on with, a, with the more formal assessment in the locker room. So that leads to C, which is two things, cognition and C-spine. To a certain extent, the C-spine has occurred right at the beginning. If the player is down and not moving, the C-spine is part of that initial assessment. But if we presume for a moment this is a player where that isn't a concern, they're sitting up, they're moving, and you're not immediately concerned about the C-spine, so you've gone through your awareness, your behavior, and then the C is cognition and your C-spine. So you're using the classic questions, which is in the SCAT uh, 5, which are the Maddox questions. Um, you will also um, ask them, uh, take a history at that point in time, ask them about headaches, ask them about neck pain, and if there's any concern with the neck, you can do a very quick examination and if there's C-spine tenderness, you now may be more immediately concerned about the C-spine and your evaluation will go down a different path. If at that point you're not concerned about the C-spine, you're continuing on your concussion evaluation, you will then ask them the symptoms as outlined in the, in the SCAT-5 sheet about uh, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, blurred vision, and uh, and so on and and you will ask all those questions and you're looking for two things you're looking a for the answers and do they concern you and b their ability to answer them and uh, their focus one concern among a lot of clinicians that i've spoken to is that players will memorize answers to things like the maddox questions when you go out to assess them on field or when you're assessing them on the sideline how do you overcome players memorization of these answers? Yeah, good question. Well, frankly, uh, when you think of what the Maddox questions are trying to, to do for you as a clinician, they're trying to see if their brain is functioning. First of all, those will change every game. So they have to memorize if they're asking what half you know, we're in right now. They have to know. So if they can actually answer the questions, then from my point of view, they've achieved, their brain is working well enough. So that means they can actually access that memory and get it. So they have to have remembered who scored in the last game. And usually it's obvious. I haven't had any issue. If they don't get that right away, you're immediately suspecting a problem. So it may not just be a black and white, can they answer it, not answer it. But if you're, they're having to think about it a lot, then that's going to make you suspicious. Again, as you go through this evaluation, there's no absolute or there often isn't any absolute black and white. They've had it. It's more the subtlety. So it's watching their sharpness and their behavior. And again, it's easy. You know, if they're unconscious at the beginning of alertness, well, that's easy. If they're, if they're clearly behaving abnormally, that's easy. Those ones aren't the challenge. It's the subtler ones. And that's the more common scenario. And particularly if, you know, your, your goal is, is to determine they haven't sustained a concussion then, and you're going to allow them to continue to play. You're going to have a pretty high threshold to make sure because we want to be cautious and not err on that side. So it's more the subtler approaches. So if they're delayed or slow answering them, then that may, uh, may raise concern. 
So A, alertness, B, behavior, C, cognition, and ideally at this point, C-spine has already been assessed. What is D? So D, I, I use the term dizziness because it's a D, but really it's it's a vestibular ocular evaluation. And what I like about D is I think it's one where we can actually, for the first time, I think get some objective information. And in that, I'm doing an eye exam, I'm doing a balance exam, and they can't cheat. Again, to your point uh, that you brought up earlier, they may give the right answers and they may you know uh, willingly deny that they have symptoms for various reasons we try to educate them not to do that but again we can't control that but when it comes to dizziness and I have uh, had scenarios where I've had athletes you know get through ABC and uh, then get to D and it's very clear I can see when I do their eye exam and it's a modification of the standard uh, vestibular ocular motor screen that uh, that we do it's very quick and it gives you a lot of objective information. So of all the different ones, that's the one I've often found the most valuable because I can see that. And if you think about it, that translates into function on the field. If you're an athlete on a field to play at the speed these sports are at, your visual, your visual processing is a critical part of your performance. And if I can assess that and see some compromise there, that's going to concern me. And at this point, we're still on the field assessing the athlete. This is all within that three minutes. So to be specific for some of your listeners who know the vestibular ocular motor screen i'm doing pursuits saccades i test convergence i do a vestibular ocular reflex um, i'm looking at their pupils i can then uh, add to that dizziness a quick romberg um, all of which takes place in the matter of seconds but gives you valuable information so then let's say we've gotten through alertness behavior cognition and dizziness so far everything's good you're going all athlete looks good so the next stage is we know that concussion is an evolving physiological event of the brain so at this point because we've been out there so quick it's only been you know, seconds to a couple minutes since their mechanism of injury. So they may have done uh, done well so far. So the next step is exertion. Does that provoke symptoms? So what I've developed in the model of, of soccer where, where the clock is ticking and the challenge we have is to make a safe, accurate decision about the player without impacting the, um, you know, the personnel in the field as I have them sprint to the touchline and then I meet them there. So essentially I've exerted them. I meet them there and then ask them if that prompted any symptoms. And then to finish off, what does F stand for? So then at this point, if everything looks good, we're now on the sideline. I'm now saying this player is clear to return to play. I haven't, I haven't made a diagnosis of a concussion, but again, because we know concussion is an evolving physiological event, I can't guarantee that they may not start to develop symptoms. So F stands for follow-up. And the first follow-up is to prompt the athlete and explain to them that if they develop symptoms, they are to sit down on the field, tap on their head, and that identifies to us that they've had evolving symptoms. We will go out and and evaluate them again. And at that point, it's pretty simple. If they say, I'm starting to have symptoms, we now will pull them out of the game. The other follow-up that I have access to uniquely in my situations with the NHL and Major League Soccer is I will get video of the event. And this is an important part of our assessment of concussions as well, is looking at the video, looking for certain characteristics of the athlete at the time of the 
trauma to help uh, make us concerned. And specifically, we look for um, immediate balance or uh, or motor issues. And in fact, there was one the other night watching some highlights of a hockey game, and it was very actually last night, as a matter of fact, it was very clear the player was stumbling on his skates and all of us in the locker room watching it knew exactly what the diagnosis was at that point he's going to be pulled off fully evaluated no matter what anything else so I can look at that video the other things are there can be uh, tonic clonic posturing that can occur that we may not have seen so if we see that on the video that may prompt me to go back and look more carefully at the event Dr. Bovard you also have a lot of experience with sport at the community level. Do you have any tips for parents or coaches to recognize or manage concussion? I think the key thing is that very simple acronym that we use is if in doubt, sit them out. So it starts with that. Don't try to overthink it. If there's any doubt whatsoever, just pull them off. And I think any of your listeners who are involved with communities or are being asked to give their expertise to these community groups about what to do, that would be the take home message and start there and then otherwise I think the same ABCs can be used and you don't have to be a medical personnel to realize someone's not alert or someone's behaving abnormally and in fact an argument could be made that a parent has a better idea of behavior than a clinician does they know their child and go they're not being normal and that information has to be honored and valued and taken into consideration And if that was the case I would say they get pulled out until they can seek proper full medical attention for evaluation. You also work at a family practice here in Vancouver. What do you think is the biggest difference between caring for athletes at the elite level versus the patients you see from the general population? Yeah, that's a great question, and and, and it's one that I uh, discuss with the fellows and residents who are training in sports medicine. And I would say the biggest challenge when you're dealing with elite athletes is actually giving them the same quality of care as you give to your everyday patient. The reasoning being there's all sorts of other moving parts. There's agents, coaches, there's pressures to keep people in the game. And I think it's very important to stay grounded and stick to the principles of medicine and not compromise in any way and give them the same level of care. The advantage the elite athlete has is access to more frequent treatments more than anything else. For example, it's the therapy access that's the big difference. They have the privilege of being able to work with a therapist every day. Our average person doesn't have that. From the medical side, it really should be the same level of care you give to your everyday person. Dr. Bovard, I think that's a great place to end it. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure as well. You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Jim Bovard. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a comment and connect to our social media channels. You can also follow all things BJSM via our app, where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles, and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.